my next word, my, I have contacts with people and I've asked different people what's going on in different places. And one of those contacts is um, the, she's, she's the person who is overseeing the entire thing for the state that has to do with coronavirus. At one point, she was in charge of the whole thing going on up in um, Kirkland. And then as other things spread out, they bumped her. Other people are in charge now. And she's in charge of all the people that are in charge. Okay, so um, I had a long, indirect conversation with her about this and then a direct conversation that was short. The long conversation went something like this. Give me a real scope of the problem. You know, uh, and, and basically the answer was it's about 90, it's about 5% real issue that they're working and 95% issues that are caused by overreactions to the issue. Do you follow me? So, um, so then the direct contact I had was this. <laughs> um, I said, what's, what's the deal? And here, here was our answer. Stay calm and wash your hands. <laughs> right? So as a church, I mean, I'm not going to create a church policy about this, but I'm saying, I want to say this, just be wise about this. As if you shouldn't have been wise already about the cold and flu season. If you're sick, stay home. I will. I'm not going to come here and sneeze on you. Um, I wouldn't have done that anyway. But if you're sick, you should stay home and um, you should wash your hands. And, um, you know, Lisa shows me a video the other day of someone from the state just reading this paper saying it's really, really important that you don't touch your face, you don't keep your hands, don't, don't make contact with other people, don't sneeze, cover your coughs, and don't touch your, your, your eyes, your ear, or your mouth. And then she had to go to the next page, and she... And <laughs> don't shake hands with me after church now because of that, by the way. So I just encourage you to um, stay calm. And wash your hands. And if you don't feel well, stay home that week. But listen, we're going to be meeting together unless the circumstances suggest something, wisdom would do something different. Fair enough? Okay. So, and you can always get information about what's going on here on our our church webpage, and and I'll just let it go with that. So now uh, let me get to the proverb of the day. Can I do that? We'll get started in the message today. Today's the 8th. You turned your clocks ahead. Way to go. I can hardly wait till 11 o'clock comes. We're going to see who shows up for the 10 o'clock service. Um, Today, I chose verse 34. Blessed is the man who listens to wisdom, watching daily at wisdom's gates, waiting at the posts of wisdom's doors. So we've been in this series about foundations. Last week, we talked about the the final authority. The, The last word in authority needs to be scripture, the Bible. Today, we're going to still be a little bit on uh, biblical authority, and I want to specifically talk to you today, today about the application of biblical authority. Here's the idea. You can't just do what you want. That is really fun to say. You just can't, do, just can't, can't just do what you want. Come on. You can't just do what you want. Say that with me. You can't just do what you want. That's fun, isn't it? If you're a parent, that's a great, that's, you know, you, you can't just do what you want. You know, it's like... Um, it's kind of fun to say it. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit, that, that's the essence of being a Christian. God's word reminds us that if, if somebody has, has cheated you or stolen from you or hurt you or harmed you or neglected you, you, you can't just do what you want. You know, if, if you're battling loneliness or uh, discouragement or um, selfishness, here's the thing. You know, we have a master and that master has a plan and his plan is written down in a book called the Bible. And if you claim Jesus as Lord, you can't just do what you want. But sadly, there are a lot of people who 
claim to be Christ's followers and are not under the authority of Scripture. And the place where that most often fails is at the point of application. Now, Psalm 19 is, I think, probably the most concentrated teaching in all of Scriptures about the authority of Scripture. Um, Psalm 119 has, you know, that's a long psalm. It's 176 verses. It has a lot to say. Um, not m- wanting to discourage you from reading that one at all, but, the, the, but, but uh, Psalm 19 itself, is, it's, it's concentrated. It's really, really concentrated. The passage itself is actually a very, very beautiful poem written by David and, and set to song, and, but there's nothing, um, nothing within it that, that uh, points to a date. So we don't really know what was going on in David's life, and I think that in this case, it's probably because the Holy Spirit didn't want us to associate it with any specific kind of event. But basically... Uh, he, he, he was, it's, it's, a, it's poetry. And poetry doesn't always, um, it doesn't always translate from Hebrew into English. So um, I wanted to point out to you some of the structure. So if you, uh, this may not stay up long enough for you to, for you note takers. That's why you, you should have been handed something. Did, did you get handed? Oh, good. You should have been handed something when you came in because I, I listen, about, about the slides, it's not, it's not their fault back there that they don't stay up long enough. I mean, we can probably keep them up a little longer than we have, but a lot of times I make a slide and there's something back-to-back and they got no choice but to stay with me. And so um, this, that's why I got, gave you the handout. Um, I'm sorry. Okay. So, okay. So anyway, so here's what's packed into this scripture. In this little short passage, there are actually seven different titles or descriptors of scripture. The law, the testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, and judgments. Scripture is called all of those things. Those are all names for scriptures. And then there are these witnesses about those, those titles. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous. And then there are outcomes, outcomes from um, those things that are being witnessed about. It, they revi- it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. And then there's this great reward. Okay, so let's jump into the passage itself. We're going to be starting in verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So as we get into this and we're reviewing biblical authority, I want to review our definition from last time. Biblical authority is the belief, actually conviction, I'd say conviction, that no truth prevails over Scripture. And genuine Christ followers must and do submit to its demand. Now, the, the power that we have in the Bible is, is, is not in its distribution. The power in the Bible is in its proclamation. And that, that's my part. The, the application part, that's, that's our part. The power of the Bible is not in its distribution. In fact, I don't think there's ever been a time in history that the Bible has been more available um, than it is today, yet has made such little difference in the way people live. The Bible's everywhere. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, I mean, you, you know that it's everywhere. We, we have it. Uh, but it wasn't that long ago in media that there, was, there were hardly ever any faith-based movies at all. And if they were, they were kind of cheesy. 
right? I mean, I mean, I mean, okay, I shouldn't make that kind of assessment, but they were, they just couldn't compete with, you know, Titanic or something or whatever. Not that you should watch that Titanic, but I mean, the entertainment aspect of them just didn't have uh, a mass draw. And, um, but it wasn't that long ago, if you happened to see Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, it's, it's still to this day the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time. Not that I'm here to push R-rated movies. I'm not. But that says something. When you think about the audience for that particular band of movies, um, it's still the highest grossing rated of all time. And, um, you know, people have Bibles in their home and in their study and in their glove box and on their phone and, and in their hands. And, um, you know, sometimes they're sitting on top of the TV, on top of the cable box, and they're collecting dust. I don't know. But never has the Word of God been so readily available but made such little difference in the way people live. The power of the Bible is not in its distribution. It's everywhere. The power of the Bible is in its proclamation and in its application. And that's where we find the attack. The application of God's word is what is really under attack. It's the application. It seems like the Bible, it seems like it's under attack for its veracity, but, but when you look below the surface, you find out that it's actually under attack at the point of application. And, um, you know, there are lots of examples. So here's a picture of, of um, Princeton University one of the greatly coveted universities in our country. Um, most of the big ones were all started by Christians, uh, but with Christian, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Now listen to a couple of excerpts from their founding documents. This is from Harvard. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's in their founding documents, the law and liberty orders of Harvard from 1646. That's what they started with. Okay, here, here's one from Yale. All scholars shall live religiously, religious, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, which are the fountain of life and truth, and constantly attending to the duties of religion, both public and private, from Yale Law, um, 1745. Over time, of course, um, they've really become pretty much the opposite of that today. Um, and this decline in the authority of God's word isn't just in institutions. It's also slipped into denominations. You can web search this yourself if you want to. And so I don't want to spend too many of our precious minutes. I'll just spend a couple minutes on this today. But pretty much every mainline denomination, and this is, this is sadly true. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, you, would, you would know the Church of England. We would call that the Anglican Church. Um, in the United States, it's, 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 it's called the Episcopalian Church. Um, and that was the church that John Wesley left to form the, the Methodist denomination. The Methodists, at the time that they started, were known for their five-step concentrated, disciplined focus on holiness. Very famous how they started um, under John Wesley. And now listen, there are certainly exceptions to what I'm going to say um, and I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with the words that I use today because maybe you know of an evangelical Anglican church where um, they certainly exist, where they teach Christ. And maybe you know a gospel-preaching Methodist church um, as well. But most of them, most of them are Christ-denier, Bible-rejecting denominational churches. And the same could be said today of many churches, many, but, but not all Presbyterian churches. I mean, most mainline denomination churches, it's more about social justice than the word of God. 
in the pretense of Christ. And I, I'm not making these kind of comments because we're in a competition to gain people to fill seats. I'm making these comments because I want to tell you the truth. I need to tell you the truth about this. And, and, um, um, you know, and we're in a denomination, by the way. Now listen, I believe in Foursquare. I believe in the value of our denomination. I believe in what we stand for. But listen, I, I'm not like this denomination guy. You got to be in a denomination. I, 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 I don't have a favorite denomination. I have a favorite master. His name is Jesus. I have a favorite book. It is the Bible. And so long as this denomination continue, continues to stand for that, it's worth being in it because it associates us with, with other people and it provides coverings and guidance and develops leaders and so forth. And that's all really good. But last I checked, I don't see too much teaching in red in my book about joining denominations. If you follow me, right? Okay, so it's good to associate with other Christians, but we don't pursue a denomination. I just care, as a church, that we live under the word of God and that we go about building a church family where the culture is building itself as a place that stands on the authority of Scripture, not just for us, but for future generations. That's a big deal. So here's the reality. Though institutions defect and denominations fall away from the word of God, this really happens because individuals fall away from the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And, you know, at this point in the sermon, I could, you know, pretty easily roll out some names here of specific individuals. Um, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm thinking, uh, I can think of lots of examples, but I'm thinking of a particular guy who was, got a wonderful education in Christ and uh, the authority of God's word. And today he travels the world denying the deity of Christ and says Jesus was just a man and basically denying the word of God. And I can, I can think of another guy who was the pastor of a fairly significant uh, large regional church and that church ended up blowing up. And when it started, this guy was so committed to the word of God, the things that we're committed to. And today he's not committed to any of it. He strongly opposes the, the, the God's word. And he basically says, if Christians want to be relevant to the world today, they can't go on sharing 2,000-year-old letters. <laughs> I mean, I could give you the names of these people. By the way, it would not be wrong for me to do that. And I, I say it wouldn't be wrong because the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to, to mention Alexander and Hymenaeus and, and um, Janus and Jambres. By name, they're mentioned in Scripture as people with, you know, messed up theology and, and the Holy... So it wouldn't be wrong for me to mention names with you right now. <laughs> but you know why I won't do it? I mean... No, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad this is a light. I mean, I really am. But, um, but the reason that I really would not do that is because there would be some here that would say, um, you know, you shouldn't have said those names. Even though Scripture says and gives examples of it, there would be some here say, I know that's what the Bible says, but I just don't think you should have done it. I mean, there's the substitution of our own assessment of what's best instead of what Scripture sometimes would require because it's a little bit rough around the edges. 
or for, for whatever reason, from our own viewpoint. And so we start these really, really finely, fine distinctions about, yeah, the Bible says this, but I don't quite think that. And since it's not a big, huge issue, we decide, okay, we're only going to really focus here on, is, is, is Christ the king? I mean, and these other little things we'll agree to disagree on. But what's really can be happening there is we substitute our own assessments instead of the Word of God. And I think when that happens, that's sadly evidence that you're not under the Bible as your ultimate authority. And listen, loved ones, there is not another group of people on this planet that I care more about and love more than this group of people those that the Lord has given to Lisa and me to, to partner and to lead with here. We really, really care about you. Um, but can I, and with that understanding, can I tell you that, that there are a lot of people who articulate submission to the word of God, including people I've looked up to in my years, but when the rubber meets the road, they just won't do what scripture says. And so this fall of institutions and denominations and individuals, there was this, this study, this interesting study at Wheaton College published by Moody, Moody Press. Uh, it's called, uh, they published a book that, that details it's called The Making of an Atheist. Asked the question, where do atheists come from? The questions, of course, are like, did it come, did their flight from faith come from this dispassionate review of evidence? Did it, is it from this insufficient uh, rational grounds for belief in God? The study doesn't land there. It, instead, it comes up with pretty good proof that opposition to religious faith has more to do with passion than reason. Let that settle for just a moment. Um, in the end, the evidence has, has, it says that, the, that, that evidence has little to do with with how, the, how atheists arrive at their anti-faith. It, it's, it's not at all... Um, a consequence of intellectual doubts. Those are just the symptoms. For atheists, the, what's the missing ingredient is not evidence. It's obedience. The root cause of, of moral rebellion, that, that's what the study says, that immorality leads to unbelief. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's a pretty black and white statement, God. Sometimes publicly and sometimes privately, there's too often an immoral cause that's driving this, this irrational passion for denying the authority of scriptures um, among people who have once proclaimed it. So to summarize, defection from faith is most often moral. It's not intellectual. When you find someone who's walking away from or denying what they once believed, it's because they're looking for a new theology that they can use to defend choices that they've already made. So if you're going to stand for church family, if you're going to stand for the authority of Scripture, we stand or fall. This, this, this rises or falls at this point of application. You just can't do what you want. You just can't do what you want. You have to be willing, always, 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 every day willing to surrender yourself to the authority of Scripture. Okay, so the application of God's Word is always under attack. Second thing is, is the application of God's Word must be personal. Okay, so as we look at this passage, we're going to see um, there are six 
applications of God's word. Okay, first one is the salvation application. Uh, Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. This word law, Torah, comes from a root word that means flowing, okay? Like the flowing of water or living water. Um, And here here what this this is trying to say is that the law for living and, and the words of God for you to live your life, basically, are perfect, it says. And when you see the word Lord in the, in the scripture, and it's all caps, we've talked about this before, that's God's covenant name. This is how God relates to us personally. This is how God relates to us as his children and, and throughout this manual that he gave to us called the Bible. The word perfect, tamin there, means all-sided. It's many-faceted. It's all-encompassing. It's without spot or inclusion. You're getting a picture probably if you have ever looked at diamonds before. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the idea that God's comprehensive love is perfect. Um, This translation says reviving the soul, your soul. Every person listening to me is going to live forever. There is not a time coming a thousand years from now, a million years from now, a billion years from now, a trillion years from from now, where you will ever cease to exist. You will live somewhere. And at the end of this life, that's going to be determined. Jesus talked about that, and he talked about it in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. That is one of the most sad passages in all the Bible. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And this is a lifetime to get on that narrow road. <laughs> You know, to get on this road, this, 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 this biblical road, this Jesus road. And the law of the Lord is so comprehensive, it says, it's so perfect that it's able to revive, to restore, to, to convert, one, passage, one translation says. The law of the Lord is so comprehensive that it's able to totally transform the inner man. It can take a person lost in darkness. It can take a person without hope, without God. And, and the word of God is, is able to totally transform forever that person's soul. Okay, so salvation application, then two, wisdom application. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The picture is like here, God, testimony is God taking the witness stand. You know, do you help tell, tell the truth, the whole truth, so help, you, so help you God? I mean, I don't know how you do that. But anyway, so um, it's, the picture here is him on the witness stand. He's talking about himself. He says his testimony is sure, reliable, durable. The NIV translates it as trustworthy. It's, this word here is very, very similar to our word amen. It's like it's saying, it's actually similar. So it's like saying the, the testimony of the Lord is amen. You know, it's settled. It's certain. It's sure. It's not wavering. It's not, it's not wallowing. God's testimony about himself, it, it makes the simple wise. Sounds like a great idea to me. I mean, I mean, um, I mean it's this idea of a person who has... No discernment, no ability really to weigh good and bad at all. And um, he, he, this guy's got no capacity to know right from wrong or f- true from false. So they vacillate and you can't depend on them um, to do or to be righteous. But the good news is that this guy can be totally changed. This, 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 this woman can be made into a person of immense enviable wisdom by the word of God. <laughs> Think how desperately that's needed. I mean, it's amazing. 
I read an article um, from the BBC. Um, the more inept you are, the smarter you think you are. Let that settle for a moment. Um, I mean, the worse you are at something, the less you're able to see how bad at it you really are. So these researchers from Cornell, um, two guys named Dunning and Kruger, tested whether people who lack certain skills are more likely to lack awareness of their lack of ability. Does that make sense? They don't realize how bad they are at it. In this, in this um, research paper, Dunning and Kruger, um, they, they start out by talking about this, this guy who robbed a bank in Pittsburgh. They name his name. It's not important. But he was, he was arrested shortly after robbing two banks in broad daylight, no mask, no disguise of any kind. And when the police showed him videos of him robbing the bank, okay, this is true, true case. He said, but I put on the juice. And he's referencing lemon juice because he thought that if you put lemon juice on, it would make you invisible to <laughs> cameras. He not only was bad at robbing banks, but he didn't realize how bad he was. So they devised some experiments to test the skills for people. Um, you know, if you were lacking some skill, did you also lack the awareness of how bad you were at the skill? You following with me so far? Okay, here's what they say, and I'll just read a couple of excerpts. I won't go too long. People who performed the worst were also the worst in estimating their own aptitude. The most incompetent participants consistently failed to realize they were at the bottom of the pack. Here's, here's, here's a, even when people gave them feedback about their skills, they refused to pay attention to the feedback because they saw themselves as not needing feedback because they thought they were a lot better at the skill. Okay? I've been this person in different... <laughs> okay, so in this study, they call this unskilled and unaware of it. That's a dangerous combination. Here, so here's some examples. Hunters. They said, there, we have any hunters in this room? I'm, don't raise your hand. <laughs> but of the hunters who know the least about firearms, those are the ones that are most sure that if you go hunting with them, they're not going to blow your head off. Okay. Okay, I don't know what that means. Doctors with the worst bedside manner also think they're awesome with people. And if you bring that up to them, they tend to blame it on you. Okay, that's... that's a, preachers who are, have the most boring sermons actually think you're still listening to me right now. Thank you for that kind laugh. Okay, so they call, this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it explains why sometimes people who have really, really high confidence in their ideas actually can sometimes say the stupidest things. How is it that that, how, that's, how do we fix that? Verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's testimony about himself is so reliable it can take a vacillating simpleton and make him or her skilled at daily living. How's that going for you? The Word of God can help you make, make you skilled. Um, okay, number three, the joy application. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts, some translations say statutes. And these are God's rulings. They're, they're his prescriptions, his pronouncements, his charges, these divine principles. The world's got a lot of principles. You know, you can pick it up, pick it up you know, what goes around comes around. Fool me once, shame on you. I mean, they're all kind of fun, but they're 
they really kind of are more fun and nonsense than valuable. But the precepts of the Lord are right. 100% accurate in all that they assert. In fact, they're so right. They're so dependable that they bring joy to the heart. I mean, I mean, I think it would be sad if some of us here didn't know what that means. But, um, I mean, maybe you've never had the experience where you were reading in the Bible or you're in the Bible and, um, and all of a sudden you realize something and it just brings life into your soul where you read about it and you're thinking about it and go, yes, yes, I get it. And the lights go on and there's this joy that comes from this truth that's in you. I want that for you. We should all get that, and it should happen. Okay, number four, the clarity application. Verse eight, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The NIV uses the word radiant there. The idea here is this, this absence of, of any visual impediment. No blockage, no blot of any kind. It's crystal clear. It's like looking at a diamond, kind of. The commandment of the Lord is pure, without blemish, without inclusion. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and as, as, as a result, it enlightens the eyes. It's kind of like the opposite of the simpleton. What do you do when lost people around you say things or do things that you know are kind of nuts? <laughs> you know, I made a big mistake a couple weeks ago um, in this. Lisa and I were at a meeting that had nothing to do with church or churches or anything. We were at a, just this meeting. And uh, as the meeting was wrapping up, one of the people attending the meeting got up and started chanting something um, that was political, um, but it had some spiritual ramifications to it, and it just, I don't know, I don't want to say the guy triggered me, but my lack of self-control is what triggered me, and uh, it was really dumb what he was saying. And I I was alone with him, but I said to him, you're kidding, right? You know, kind of like that. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. I don't know what he does. He doesn't know what I do. It's just kind of like one of those um, dumb moments for me. And um, I said, you're kidding, right? And he said, no. And he started chanting it louder and harder. And I looked at him, and I just said to him, you're nuts. (laughs) Okay, I know better than that. Because, you know, Proverbs 23 tells you that when you try to correct a fool, they will, okay, now listen, for me to say that and you refer to him as a fool, I I don't mean it the way that sounds. I just know this, that just because, okay, I was wrong. I was dead wrong to make those comments to this guy. It wasn't like he was saying, hey, what do you think? Speak into my life. He just kind of went off, and I thought somehow, oh, God placed me on the earth to fix this dude. No, (laughs) no. And I made zero headway with him, and I went away from there. I didn't went away with my tail between my legs. I went away feeling the Holy Spirit saying, how'd that work out for you, Terry? (laughs) That was 100% you, son. Way to go. Well, you know, that was um, because just because somebody is offensive to you, you just can't do what you want. My eyes were in our, you know, the scripture says that my eyes are enlightened by, our eyes are enlightened by God's commandment. And because, and because I do know some of them, 1 Corinthians 2, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolish to, to him, nor can he know them. The natural man, the man who was born, is in the state that he was born in, the man who has not been born again, the unsaved man. The natural man cannot. It doesn't say won't. 
here's a question. Would you slap a blind man for walking into a wall? Hey, watch where you're going. No, of course not. That's why I'm saying I, I really mess this up. Here's another scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's a small g God. You catch that, right? Um, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Remember, some of the people saying the most foolish things are unaware of how foolish they are. And when you see this, you can't just do what you want. You have to do what the Bible says. And we don't slap blind people, and we don't come out over the top with harsh comments about lost people. We love them. We bear witness of Christ to them, especially concerning those in our lives who are the ones that making decisions that grieve us the most. I think for the most part, here's what I think for the most part, seldom are we called to be Nathan to David, to the adultery of David, if you know that story. I think that's very rare that we're ever called to that. I have been called to that. Maybe some of you at some point have been called to that. But mostly, we are called to be Jesus to the adulterous woman and just drop the rock. And you and I can have a discussion about the Bible if you want to. Um, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, we don't have to even see everything eye to eye and the way I do. What I'm trying to do, point out to you today is this. Biblical authority is not failing at the point of intellectual argument. Biblical authority is failing in our generation at the point of application. Okay. Salvation application, wisdom application, joy application, clarity application, Stability application, five, stability. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This fear of the Lord phrase, let's define that. The fear of the Lord is the attitude of heart that seeks a right relationship to the fear source. If you fear your stove, then you've learned not to touch it when it's hot. When it's hot, you just don't touch it. If you fear um, getting crushed by cars in traffic, you look both ways before you cross. You know, some fear is healthy, right? Okay, I mean, you look both ways for If you fear the loss of your health, well, then you pay attention to exercise and, and how you eat. Some fear is healthy. Fear of the Lord is the attitude of heart that seeks a right relationship to the fear source, which in this context is God. And it's a good thing. Remember the two thieves that were on the cross to Jesus' left and right? One thief's going, hey, come on, get yourself down, get us down from here. And the other first one, while the other one, while the first one is still yelling his insults, he says, hey, 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 we're here for our own sins, you know. Don't you even fear God? The one thief is correcting the other thief, you know, dude, we're we're here, you know, we're just we're just like moments away from eternity and and, and you're shouting and, and cursing at this innocent person. And this one, of course, Scripture tells us was with Jesus in paradise. Um, the other one, unless we don't have the whole story, not so much. But I think we do have the full story. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. And here it says, the fear of the Lord, as contained in, in Scripture, is clean, enduring forever. Clean is this idea of without blemish. It's, it's consistently uncompromised. It's, it's without dilution. So without diluting it, 
It's full strength. It's, it's, um, it's not watered down. Do not water down your fear for the Lord. Contextually and culturally, there is a tendency to say fear of the Lord means respect. Yeah, that's part of it. But Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill your flesh. Fear the one who can send you for eternity, right? So don't dilute your definition of the fear of the Lord. God's telling us that a, a clean fear of the Lord can bring stability to every person in every generation who will turn to it. So the question I would ask you is, do you fear the Lord? Have you ever found yourself asking, do I fear God? If scripture says it's a, it's, a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in Hebrews. You know, years ago, I would joke with my friends um, in my 20s and 30s, you know, when you're bulletproof as a man, um, you know, we would get in a car somewhere and I would make this snide comment to them because they didn't have their seatbelt on. I wouldn't say, hey, why don't you have your seatbelt on? I would instead say, do you love your wife? You know, do you love your wife? And they'd look at me and I'd say, well, then put on your seatbelt. If you love your wife, you take care of yourself because she doesn't want me to have to tell her that you went through the windshield because you wouldn't put on your Does that make any sense? It was really snide, but what I was really saying was, you know, you, you could at uns, some unplanned, unscheduled moment find yourselves standing before the God of the universe in whatever state you are in in this moment. Do you ever think about that? I mean, why would you take res re these reckless risks? Are you ever afraid of that? Are you ever afraid in that moment that you haven't got your heart right with the king? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 tells us. All real wisdom starts after the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord begins wisdom. Don't think you have any wisdom if you don't have the fear of the Lord. You know, there's a God. I'm going to answer to him, and I can't just do what I want. That's where it starts. The fear of the Lord's without blemish. Brings, brings stability to every person and every generation who turns to it. Okay, then number six, the justice application. Justice. The rules of the Lord, his commandments, actually judgments, really, is what this is saying. They are true and righteous altogether. There have been things that have happened to you things that were done to you, things that, that were said about you, things that you've, where you've been wronged, that you've had to endure, and you can't fix, and you can't change, and you carry it. You just carry that. The Scripture is telling us that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So I want to remind you that the case is not closed yet. Someday, those case files are going to be opened up, and the one who has all of the evidence and all of the truth is going to step to center stage, and that thing is going to be made right. And for those who have turned from their sin and embraced Jesus by faith, their failures are going to be brought into the blood of Jesus, and they're going to experience the free forgiveness that we've received. Amen? Amen? And pray for that for your enemies. You know, pray that they'll be under the mercy of God. But if they don't get there, they will experience the judgments of a righteous God. Either that sin is placed upon Christ and applied personally through faith, or that sin is placed upon them individually for all of eternity. Now, 
I'm aware of the nuances of that sentence and how complicated that, that is, but don't lose the point. If you've been wronged, God will someday, personally himself, handle it. And you can leave it with him. And I realize that me saying that right now doesn't make that easy. But you can, and it's true. And it means that I can't just do what I want to do. It means I can't just say what I want to say. I have a master, and the master has a book. And I call you, I challenge you to come back under the authority of scriptures. Are you under the authority of scripture? Let's wrap up the passage, verses 10 and 11. More to be desired are they, what's the they? It's the, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the rules, the judgment. Then gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Just give me something sweet. I need something sweet. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There it is. That's the application of God's word. It's going to be rewarded. It's going to be rewarded. You have to apply God's word faithfully in your life, and then if you do that, you won't lose. You, you keep loving that spouse. You keep raising those kids. You keep praying your heart out. You keep following by faith. You keep doing what's right, and that reward is coming fast. Now, um, in my study time, I found this um, thing that we don't do it here, but I've seen other churches do this or some, some form of this, and listen, I'm not, by using this, endorsing somebody else's church or theology. I just got this little passage. I'm going to read it out loud to you. Don't put it up quite yet. When I start reading, you can put it up, okay? Um, and so I'm giving you this disclaimer because I want you to understand that this is not trying to generate some new theology, okay? I just believe this to be true about the Word of God, and it's good. It's a good truth. It spoke to me personally, um, and I've heard it before. Maybe you've heard it. This is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I'm going where it says I will go. God's word is milk for my soul. God's word is seed for my faith. God's word is a light for my path. God's word is power for my victory. God's word is freedom for my life. When I read God's word, it brings me joy. When I study God's word, it keeps me from shame. When I memorize God's word, it purifies my heart. When I quote the, God's word, it defeats my enemies. When I meditate on God's word, it brings me success. When I abide in God's word, it gives me confidence. I am a Bible-believing follower of Christ. I love that. Let's pray. So, Lord, um, help us. First off, thank you, God, for forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, for raising us and teaching us and parenting us with such love and diligence and righteousness and with such effect. Lord, all of us are somewhere on the trail of being parented by you to become more mature, more godly, more like your son. So be that, Lord. Let that happen. And fill us, Lord, with life and speak to us today. Let every day we be more mature and more like you than we were the day before. Help us, Lord, to put our feet, both of them, on your word, not a single toe off the edge. Help us, not because it's works, not because it, we, we think it will make, us hap, make you happier, but because, Lord, it will make our lives better and as we become more like Christ. Let that be a truth that we hold true in our hearts. And then, Lord, help, help us to lovingly find ways to help that spill over on people around us, that we would never be harsh with the lost, that somehow, Lord, our hearts would have a place to be a witness for you 
because we were lost once. Thank God we know that your word 